Well, good morning, church. Happy start of the week Sunday. Would you stand up this morning, wave at somebody across the room, let them know you're glad they're here this morning. Come on, God is good, amen. Hey, put your hands together like this for me. I saw Satan fall like lightning. I saw darkness run for cover. But the miracle that I just can't get over, my name is registered in heaven. I believe in signs and wonders. I have resurrection power. This is my testimony. This is my testimony. 
Isn't he worthy today, church? There was a moment when the lights went out. When death has claimed its victory. The king of love had given up his life. The darkest day in history.
to sing this because you are worthy of it all And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up for to read. You know, it's a very popular thing nowadays to say in the church, well, we don't want to get involved in any traditions or any customs. You know, we're, we're free of all of that. Well, 
Jesus had a custom. And his custom was every Sabbath day he went to the synagogue. Hallelujah. And so here we are in the New Testament synagogue, the church. Anyway, uh, I thought of it like this. Lord, when I'm going to church today, just by my going there, it's a, it's a demonstration of my body and of myself. I am going there, and I'm saying to you, I serve you. I am going there, my custom, I am going there to say, you are first in my life. I am going to that place to say, I serve you. It's a demonstration that I serve you, that I put you first, that I'm hungry for you, that I listen to your voice. When we come to church, we should come with a real purpose. You know, Jesus went every week. I'm being like Jesus. I'm going to church. I'm being like Jesus. It's a custom. It's my custom to gather with other, others who love Jesus. We are the church. But I'm not just coming. I'm going there. I'm telling the Lord this morning. I'm going there as a declaration. I will serve you. I will serve you. I don't care what attacks come against me because people are all in different attacks. I don't care what attack comes against me. I don't care what feelings come against me that think, oh, well, I don't feel like doing that. No. My spirit dominates me. My spirit rules my mind, rules my body, rules my actions. And we declare just like that song we were singing, we are declaring Jesus, all hail King Jesus. You are King, you are Lord, and we declare it. So I want us to sing that chorus one more time, that all hail King Jesus. And, we're, and as we sing it, let it be additionally with a declaration, here we are, Lord, uh, showing you, showing ourselves that we are here as a declaration that we will live for you. We will serve you. You are king. Amen. Okay, go ahead. In all King Jesus, in to each life, 
encouragement and wisdom and direction and strength and healing and deliverance. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We receive that of you, Lord, today for each one in our church family, Lord. Strengthen each one, Lord, with your mighty power by your spirit. Speak to our hearts today. We thank you that we are infused with power from on high. Hallelujah. We give you all the praise, glory, and honor, Jesus. You are our Lord. In Jesus' precious name, and if you can agree with that, say amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. We're going to dismiss the children at this time to their class and junior high youth. You may be dismissed. And then before you are seated, uh, go ahead and introduce yourself to several people around you. Give them a warm welcome and God bless you. Then you may be seated. Reach across the aisle if you need to. Those of you who are worshiping with us this morning on Facebook and YouTube, we're so glad that you've joined us. There's no distance in the spirit. We love you. We thank you for being here with us. Praise the Lord. Well, if you're worshiping with us today for the first time, uh, or if you want to be in touch with us for any reason whatsoever, there are connect cards in the seat in front of you. Just fill that out and let us know anything you want us to know or we can pray with you about. That's always a great way to get in touch with us if you uh, don't get in touch with us in person or by phone. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Just a few things we want to let you know about. Ladies, this Tuesday night here at the church at 7 o'clock, we'll be having our Bible study. We always have a wonderful time in the Word of God. We have fellowship. We always have some food. And then we also have a wonderful time of prayer together. Man, just a sweet time of prayer each time. And we just hit it all. We just do everything that, <laughs> that night. So if you haven't joined us before, we welcome you to join us uh, this Tuesday night at 7 o'clock. Praise the Lord. We're going to give you an opportunity to give this morning. And so um, our ushers are going to come. And then there's uh, uh, envelopes in the seats in front of you. You can give by cash or check, of course, as well as um, texting it online. Just take your choice, A, B, C, D, whichever. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. We thank you for your presence today in our midst and in our lives. You have been good to us always. We trust in you no matter how steep the way, we trust in you. We rejoice in you. And we also, Lord, we give to you our tithes and our offerings, thanking you for your provision, thanking you for your faithfulness, and worshiping you. The first fruits, our substance, O oh Lord, you are good. 
Your mercy endures forever. In Jesus' name, amen. After you've had the chance to give, would you stand and worship with us again this morning? Yeah. 
of the Holy Ghost and power. We believe for financial miracles and miracles of healing in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to start in Isaiah chapter 59, verse 19. God is speaking of Israel and his deliverance for them. Isaiah 59, verse 19, So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west, and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. There are times in life when it seems like the devil is coming from every direction. Our church has had one of those times. We've had a rough last 12 years. The last part of verse 19 again, when the enemy shall come in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. We read the stories of God's delivering power in the Old Testament and there were many different ways that he delivered Israel depending on the battles and the circumstances and so forth. And I think that we have a habit of picking which means of deliverance that we want. I personally like the ones where God caused the enemies of Israel to turn against each other, kill each other, and then just the children of Israel coming on behind that action, that activity, and taking up the spoil. I wish all of our deliverances were that way. Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 24, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man, which built his house upon a rock. And the rains descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. 
And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house. And it fell and great was the fall of it. Folks, we know that the word of God is more powerful than anything that the devil's got. And since that's the case, If we were built up in spirit and committed to the word, before the devil came, before the devil attacked us, then we could avoid any and every evil work. But like Proverbs says, if you knew when the thief was coming, you'd guard your house and make sure he couldn't get in. Paul calls that redeeming the time. He writes to the church in two different churches, and he encourages them to redeem the time. And what he's talking about is build themselves up before the devil comes so that they're prepared when he does come. A couple of weeks ago, the Lord started dealing with me about different ways and means of victory. And one of the things that he drew my attention to, there were three times throughout the Gospels where Jesus healed somebody by spitting on them. But in Mark chapter 8, there's a, a situation that's very strange. Mark chapter 8, verse 22. And he came to Bethsaida, and they brought him a, a blind man unto him and besought him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes he, and put his hands upon him, he asked if he saw anything. And he looked up and said, I see men as trees walking. After that, he put his hands upon his eye, again upon his eyes and made him look up. And he was restored and saw every man clearly. And he sent him away to his house, saying, Neither go into the town nor tell it to any in the town. And folks, what was it that caused Jesus spit to have healing power for this blind man? It's a, it's a real question. And the only answer I can come up with is because it came from the innermost part of Jesus 
And Jesus, as a righteous man here on the earth, was empowered by God to heal the sick. What other time in the scriptures can we find where Jesus asked somebody if they could see better or if, if they were improved? Let's read through this story again. Again, verse eight, uh, verse 22, and he came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man unto him and besought him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. The Bible tells us that Jesus cursed several of the cities that he ministered in because they didn't hear or understand the things that they were seeing. Jesus cursed Chorazin and Bethsaida together at the same time. And he said to the people that were listening, he said, if the works that were done in your cities had been done in the cities of Tyre and Sidon, who were major wicked cities, he said they would have repented and turned from their ways. Another case, Jesus condemns and curses Capernaum. Now, Capernaum was a place where Jesus did a lot of miracles and signs and wonders. And Jesus said if the works that had been done in Capernaum had been done in Sodom, then the city wouldn't have been destroyed. They would have repented, and the city wouldn't have been restored, wouldn't have been destroyed. So Jesus takes this man and leads him out of the cursed town of Bethsaida. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands upon him, he asked him if he saw aught or anything. And he looked up and said, I see men as trees walking. After that, he put his hands again upon his eyes and made him look up. And folks, the only thing that we see in Jesus' ministry that hindered the healing power of God was unbelief. You remember in Nazareth, he could, do, he could there do no mighty work. It doesn't say he wouldn't do any mighty work or any miracle. Mark chapter 6, verse 5, I believe it is, says, and he could there do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sickly folks, a few folks with minor ailments, and healed them. And he marveled at their unbelief. So the unbelief of the city prohibited Jesus or the power of God that was upon him from affecting any miracle of healing. So after that, verse 25, Jesus put his hands again upon his eyes and made him look up. Notice that things have changed for Jesus. Jesus first spit on the man's eyes and put his hands upon him. He asked him if he saw anything. And the man looked up and said, I see men as trees walking. And after that, Jesus put his hands again upon his eyes and made him look up. 
There was something about this man when in his response to Jesus the first time that was pre- pre- preventing the healing power of God from working in his eyes and restoring his sight. But Jesus, the second time, Jesus didn't ask him anything. He didn't ask him if he saw anything. He didn't ask him if things had changed. He made him look up. And when he did that, he was restored and saw every man clearly. Now, folks, we know that the people that were healed in Jesus' ministry weren't all healed instantly. You remember where Jesus was approached by a group of lepers and Jesus laid hands on them, commanded them to be healed and then told them to go show themselves to the priest to offer the offering of that Moses gave them in the, the law, the Old Testament law. And the Bible says the ten lepers were healed as they went. They weren't healed when Jesus was talking to them. They weren't healed when he laid hands on them. They were healed when they obeyed what he said to do and went to the high priest to offer the offerings. So here, Jesus recognizes that there's a hindrance And the fact that Jesus asked him something, asked him if he saw anything, that was not Jesus' normal operation or the way that he did things. But he asked this guy if he saw anything, and he said he saw something that was unclear. I see men as trees walking. And Jesus took a next step that made the difference in whether or not this man was going to be healed. He put his hands again upon his eyes and made him look up. And he was was restored and saw every man clearly. Now, folks, there's nothing about looking up that brings restoration just in and of itself. But Jesus recognized there was something about this man's response that's keeping his healing from being manifested. He put his hands again upon his eyes and made him look up. And then he was restored. I'm not sure the significance where it says he made him look up. Does that mean that the man's been looking down at his feet? Does it mean that the man whatever he's doing apparently he didn't look up. 
But what is the importance of looking up? We don't see any other place where Jesus ministered healing in this manner to anybody else. But with this guy, there was something about where he was focusing his attention that Jesus has to correct what he's doing if he's going to get his sight back. So he put his hands again upon him and made him look up. And he was restored and saw every man clearly. And then Jesus tells him not go back into the town and tell it to anybody. Now the next thing that happens, it tells us about how Jesus at Caesarea Philippi asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And Jesus said to them, to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said unto him, thou art the Christ. And he charged them that they should tell no man of him. Matthew 15 gives us a little bit more information on this story. It tells us after Peter answered that he was the Christ, Jesus says something to the effect, this revelation came not from man, but God has revealed this to you. But then Jesus says, and I will give unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Jesus tells him, and the Bible tells us, that the knowledge that Jesus is the Christ is the foundation for the authority of the church. Back to Mark chapter 7. Actually, it's Matthew chapter 7 I want to go back to. After Jesus tells about building your house on the rock. Verse 28 says, And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these things, the people were astonished at his doctrine. Now notice it doesn't say they were astonished at him. They were astonished at his doctrine, the teaching that he did for them. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Notice the word one is in italics in verse 29. That means it's not part of the original text. For he taught them as having authority and not as described is how it would read without the addition. Now the word as 
means the manner in which something is done or how. And the word having means to hold. So literally, Jesus taught them how to hold authority and not as described. Now, folks, I've all my life just thought that Jesus sent the disciples out to tell people that he was the Messiah and that the Messiah had come. But if that were the case, then why would Jesus have asked his disciples at Caesarea Philippi, who do men say that I am? They answered, some say you're John the Baptist, who had been beheaded by Herod at that time. Some said that he was Elijah or one of the other prophets. And then Jesus turns and asks them, who do you say I am? Now, if they were out preaching in the cities that Jesus was the Messiah, then why would he ask them, who do you say I am? There are 65 times in the four Gospels where Jesus refers to himself. 60 of those 65, he refers to himself as the Son of Man, not the Son of God. Jesus identified with mankind when he was here on the earth much more than he identified himself as the Son of God. There are several places in Scripture where Jesus commissioned his disciples, sends them away to preach in, in cities that he'll come to. And it says he sent them forth to preach the gospel of the kingdom. Now the only definition we have of that is one that Jesus gave us when his disciples asked him, to teach them to pray. Jesus gives them what is known as the Lord's Prayer. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. So the kingdom hadn't come yet. Thy kingdom come. Here's his definition. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the definition of the kingdom of God is the realm or the domain where the will of God is done on the earth just as it was done, just as it is done in heaven. The creation account tells us that after six days, God created everything that was, put man in the middle of the earth, gave him authority, 
to guard and protect the earth. And God looked at it and said that it was very good. It was literally perfect. There was no sin to taint or to alter things he created and the way that he created them. And before sin came upon the scene, the things that he created, this physical realm was literally the kingdom of God. It was the kingdom of God on the earth. But it shows us that God wanted man to experience his kingdom here rather than when we get to heaven or no need to wait till we get to heaven now folks if God never changes then the way he created the earth to begin with is the way he wants things to be God doesn't have a will in heaven and a different will here on the earth And it came to pass, Matthew 20, uh, verse 28 again. And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine and his teaching. Well, what did he teach them? For he taught them how to hold authority and not as the scribes. He taught them that man has authority on the earth. Now, we should know that anyway, because Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 tells us when God created man, he gave the purpose for his creation. And God said, let us make man in our own image after our own likeness and let them have authority over the works of our hands. God originally planned for man to have authority on the earth. He still intends for man to have authority on the earth because he doesn't change. Time doesn't change God. That verse in Isaiah 59. Verse 19, when the enemy shall come in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. This word standard means to escape, to banish. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, 
The Spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him, a means of escape. But if the kingdom of heaven that Jesus talked about means the will of God being done on the earth just like it is in heaven. Then the things that we know about heaven should instruct us how God wants things to be here on the earth. Now we don't know a whole lot about heaven but the things that we know we're sure of the book of Revelation gives us some insight into some things John saw golden streets But we accept that without hesitation because that sounds like something God would do. John also saw the gates that were made out of pearl, one giant pearl. Now, I'm not sure where the clams are that grow those. And we might be awed by some of these things, but we don't doubt them. We just accept what the Bible says about it. I wish we were as good at accepting the rest of the word as we are about those things. Really, the only questions I remember being, answered, uh, being asked about heaven had to do with relationships. The Bible says that there's no marriage in heaven. So there have been a few times over the 36 years we've been pastoring the church where a, a widow would come and ask how things are going to be in heaven. Would they be reunited with their spouse who'd gone on before them. And the Bible doesn't give us too definitive an answer. Turn with me to Psalm 107. I'm going to start in verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. 
Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he hath redeemed from the hand of the enemy, and gathered them out of the lands from the east and from the west and from the north and from south. They wandered in the wilderness in a solitary way. They found no city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted in them. Then they cried unto the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distresses. And he led them forth by night by the right way that they might go to a city of habitation. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness, such as sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, being bound in affliction and iron, because they rebelled against the words of the Lord and condemned the counsel of the Most High. Therefore he brought down their heart with labor. They fell down, and there was none to help. Then they cried unto the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distresses. He brought them out of darkness in the shadow of death and broke their bands in sunder. Now, folks, notice that the problems that the Israel found themselves in were caused by their own disobedience to the word. Then they cried unto the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distresses. He brought them out of darkness in the shadow of death and broke their bands in sunder. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he has broken the gates of brass and cut the bars of iron in sunder. Fools, because of their transgression and because of their iniquities, are afflicted. Their soul abhorreth all manner of meat, and they draw near to the gates of death. Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble, and he saves them out of their distresses. He sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble, and he saves them out of their distresses. Notice it doesn't say anything about God holding over their head. Well, how does he save them out of their distresses? He sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Folks, the Bible specifically identifies the way of healing is through the word. Now, I see most Christians try to get healed any and every other way other than the word. Some people would say, yeah, but look at James chapter 5. The prayer of faith shall save or heal the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he's committed sins, they shall be forgiven. Well, which is it? Does God heal through his word, or does he heal through prayer? Brother Hagin used to tell a story about a gentleman by the name of P.C. Nelson. He was the foremost authority on the Greek language at that time. Brother Hagin said he was in a meeting with a, a group of other ministers, and somebody asked this Dr. Nelson about James 
5, where it says, Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. And then let the elders pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick or heal the sick. And the Lord shall raise them up. And Dr. Nelson explained that in the Greek, the original text, the meaning is if someone needs additional help, is any of you past doing anything for yourself? See, God expects us to stand on his word in every situation. We don't get a pass just because we're attacked with sickness and disease. So God expects us to reach out in our own faith to begin with. And then the church is here and the elders of the church are available to help someone who's already taken the first step to stand on the word for their healing. He sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. He sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. That sounds a lot like Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits, who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases, who redeems thy life from destruction, who crowns thee with loving kindness and tender mercy. who redeems the life from destruction. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of its benefits. Thank God for the benefits. Who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases, who redeems thy life from destruction, who crowns thee with loving kindness and tender mercies. John 15, verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love. Even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. 
If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. Now the abiding in him, he's not talking about, it can't be just talking about salvation. Now this would have to apply when we're under attack. We read in Matthew 7 how that Jesus taught about what to do when storms are, have arisen. He talks about the importance of building your house on the rock to be ready when the devil comes. So when the devil does come and brings his attack against us, we've all got a choice on how we're going to respond to the devil's attack. John 15, 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, if you come against the devil in the midst of his attack against you, if you come back against the devil with the word of God and faith in his word, that would be abiding in him and his words abiding in you. And notice what he said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. Folks, there is a great benefit, a great benefit to responding to the devil's attack just as Jesus responded to the devil's temptation by quoting the word or standing on the word. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. God wants you to be able to ask and have what you will. That glorifies him. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Continue in my word. This is an expression. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. This is an expression of God's love toward us. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Continue in my love. This result that comes from our standing on the word when the devil comes in like a flood this result of us asking what we will glorifies God is an expression of the love of God toward us. And John goes on in verse 11, these things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. Jesus set this in motion for the simple truth that we might 
have fullness of joy. Now, folks, attack, being attacked by the enemy is not fun. And the enemy's attack comes against us all. You might be attacked with something different than I am. But the devil has a right to attack anybody and everybody here on the earth. But Jesus said, standing in faith and asking for what you will is a means whereby your joy can remain full. God wants us to be full of joy. Well, are we full of joy just when we're attacked of the devil? Or a better way to look at it is, can we maintain our joy while the devil's attack is against us? These scriptures say we can. There's a scripture in Jeremiah where God marvels that his people who at the time were under bondage because of their disobedience to God's word, how that none were crying restore. None were asking God for restoration. They just accepted their place of bondage or slavery. And I guess they just decided to live with it. But God marvels because no one is calling for restoration. John 15, 7 again. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. I don't know about you, but I'm calling for restoration. I want the years back that Parkinson's is taken from me. I not only want healing for myself, I want healing for the people of our church. I say restore. Let's all stand. Hallelujah. Father, in Jesus' name, we act on the words that he said. We do abide in you, and your word does abide in us. You said, therefore, that we should ask for what we will, and it would be given unto us, and it would glorify the Father. Father, we say restore. In the name of Jesus, we ask for restoration. We ask for restoration for our church. 
We ask for restoration for those that need healing. We call for restoration of finances. We call for restoration of physical health. Restore, Father. Restore. Restore, Father. Restore, Father. In Jesus' name, restore. Your word says we could have it. So we call for restoration. Father, we say restore. Restore in Jesus' name. Restore, Father. Restore. Now you call for restoration in any way that, that works for you. It doesn't happen just because we're saved. It doesn't happen just because we're spirit-filled. It happens because we put our faith on it and act on what the Bible says. Restore, Father. In Jesus' name, restore. This is our year of restoration. Thank you, Father. If this is our year of Jubilee, this is our year of restoration. We expect manifestations of the Holy Ghost in power. We believe for financial miracles and miracles of the healing in Jesus' name. Restore, Father. Restore in Jesus' name. Father, we have acted on your word because we believe you and we believe in the power of your word. So, Father, we call for restoration in every way, even in ways that we don't normally think. We thank you for restoration, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank God for restoration. Every time you think about it, call for restoration. And see that you do think about it. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Hallelujah.
We do trust you, Father. We do trust you. We trust you for restoration. Just as the word said. Say it with me. Thank God for restoration. We'll go have a restoration week. <laughs>